the most important thing, call it the golden rule for non-technical uh, founders is to frame problems, to not try to come with solutions. Understanding what the problem is, framing it clearly and getting the advice of someone that's technical, that will have a different way of thinking as compared to your own, will, uh, will allow the techies to have a voice, to feel appreciated, but also to be able to innovate. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Founder Vision. Um, I am your host, Brian Gupton with Clearview, and I'm joined today by um, Chip Spiridion uh, with AWR uh, Group um, based out of Dubai. Um, how are you doing today, Chip? Hey, Brian. Um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, lovely to meet you. And uh, I've been following your uh, previous podcasts. I've seen quite a few interesting topics coming up. And I'm, I'm keen to, uh, to dive in and uh, talk about a few of them. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Um, you know, why don't we, to, to get started, why don't you give us a, a, a little rundown of your background and, and, and how you got to AWR and how you got from uh, Romania to Dubai? Sure thing. So, uh, uh, like you said, uh, I was born in Romania. I've spent the first uh, 20 years of my life in Romania doing my studies and getting also some professional experience. Uh, then I decided to uh, move to the UK and I lived in London for nine years. Worked mostly in startups and uh, that's uh, where I got immersed into uh, the startup culture. Uh, I, uh, I got a taste of uh, what it means to build great products that people love. And uh, at one point I thought that that's going to be my forever home. However, uh, on my 30th birthday, I, I took a trip to Dubai. And I spent a week here with uh, my wife and some friends, and I fell in love. And uh, six months later, I packed my life together with my wife, and we decided to move to Dubai. Excellent. And what, what's been your background uh, work-wise? Um, I've, I've spent all my career uh, in software engineering. Uh, you know, the usual track. Started, uh, started software engineering in high school. Uh, and uh, then uh, when I was 20, I started doing it professionally and uh, uh, across Romania, the UK, and for the last four years uh, within the UAE, specifically Dubai. Interesting. And why don't you tell the, the audience a little bit about what AWR does, since they're obviously like a Dubai-based conglomerate. Um, you know, some of the, the, the folks tuning in outside of Dubai might not be familiar with the company. Sure thing. Uh, so AWR is a local group uh, here uh, in Dubai owned by an Emirati family. We uh, operate within the auto industry, uh, construction, manufacturing, uh, retail, e-commerce, uh, and quite a few other verticals. Yeah, that's interesting. And in your role there, you're, you're, you head up um, engineering, customer experience, and, and digital. What, is, what does that entail at the company? 
Well, it's not your traditional uh, sort of uh, engineering leadership role, just because uh, we're so many companies in the group and my department basically acts like an internal software house that needs to serve all the needs of all the companies across the group, which uh, puts a spin on, on the role just because you end up doing a lot of contest, context switching from uh, dealing with a e-commerce platform for retail to a car auctioning platform on uh, B2B or B2C, either for the region or uh, internationally to uh, building a connected workshop uh, uh, solution whereby you try to do uh, to track uh, vehicles through all our service centers and understand how you can optimize the process. So uh, you do get a lot of challenges. There's no boring moment. And uh, I don't know, I'm, yeah, I'm enjoying it so far. So how does that work in a company uh, like yours where your your uh, engineering team is, is, is sort of... Uh, uh, working across a lot of different industries and brands. Are, are you guys trying to build one common platform that all of those brands use or are you building, you know, something specifically for each individual brand and, and, and making tech, uh, tech decisions based off what's best for that particular brand? That's a very good question. So uh, we've been putting a lot of uh, energy into building uh, Compo reusable components that can be deployed across all the business lines. So uh, let's take something uh, simple uh, as an example. Uh, notification service, right? Uh, this could either, for example, uh, dispatch SMSs to our customers or emails. They can be transactional or promotional. And this sort of service can be deployed across all the companies in the group and uh, together with similar services form like puzzle pieces. So whenever we are looking at building a new platform, regardless if it's for retail, e-commerce, auto, manufacturing, construction, we could grab these uh, internal puzzle pieces, merge them together to uh, create the base of the new solution to be able to go to the market in months rather than years. Excellent. And so, you know, a lot of our, our listeners are, uh, you know, founders or, 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 you know, working at an early stage startup, uh, and maybe they would want to, 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 to sell to a, a big company like yours. Um, when you're evaluating um, products from early stage startups, like what, what are you looking at um, when you're considering bringing them into your, your company? Uh, they should focus on the only thing that big corporations can't do, and that's agility, right? In if you look at how things flow in, in big corporations, everything is it's usually extremely slow. There's a lot of red tape, and it's hard for them to innovate. So whenever we evaluate uh, the pitch of a startup, either to partner with them or to invest in them, we try to look at what's their product offering, how agile and adaptable they are, and what's their product market fit look like. 
Sometimes, uh, actually most of the time, uh, these would be early stage startups, so they wouldn't have uh, an accurate idea of what would be their end product. Uh, in, in that case, uh, we would look at the background of the founders uh, and uh, at uh, the niche that, uh, uh, that they're, uh, they're approaching. Because uh, even though uh, it's great to have a targeted approach and try to make an issue your own and then try to expand, your market needs to be big enough. So if you do end up acquire one or two percent out of it, the return on, me, on investment should be a hundred X for whoever tries to, uh, to help you. And are there any particular types of solutions you're looking to evaluate over the next six to 12 months? Definitely. So, uh, Right now, one of our biggest challenges is having the ability to track um, assets indoors throughout our uh, either service centers, warehouses, or uh, massive parking lots, uh, as we do have uh, a, a massive fleet of vehicles uh, uh, north of 20,000. Uh, and uh, because these uh, these locations sometimes are based in, in areas where the GPS is not extremely accurate. And since we're in Dubai over the summer, the heat will obliterate any so most of the devices that you would uh, place outdoors. Uh, right. We were looking at innovative solutions that could allow us to track these assets and to understand efficiency for, for uh, the workshops. Uh, where uh, or if we look at our uh, parking lots where we host all our new vehicles uh, we we want to be able to track uh, their state uh, they need to be rotated uh, let's say every week or so to ensure that they're in a working condition whenever uh, in a perfect condition whenever a customer is ready to pick it up and managing that whole workflow of thousands of people in hundreds of locations uh, it is quite challenging. Uh, sure. Another thing that we would be looking at uh, investing in would be some sort of automated uh, vehicle in inspection software plus hardware, whereby uh, we could take a 360 view of a vehicle either coming uh, uh, to our service shops or uh, out or for a rental and try to understand if there is any sort of damage, if uh, there are any changes on the surface, and be able to flag them and uh, dispatch notifications to our staff. Well, hopefully there are some listeners out there that are building startups for you, and you'll get some calls after they, they listen to this to help you solve those problems. What, what else? Like what, what else is exciting for you um, at AWR these days? Um, one of the things that we've been focusing at AWR uh, over the last probably year and a half is trying to innovate in a corporation. And um, this is quite challenging just because it goes against uh, kind of the immune system of uh, big enterprises, right? Uh, and trying to introduce the concept of controlled chaos 
within a big enterprise, it is quite challenging. So the approach that we're trying to take right now, and we're improving uh, on it uh, every quarter, is to have a division that lives at the edge of the organization that kind of acts like a startup within its own encapsulated environment. And they're allowed to innovate. They're, uh, they're allowed to build every type of POC that they can imagine that could bring value uh, to our organization and uh, try to pilot them, launch them uh, to, uh, after that to a limited set of customers, and when they make sense, incorporate them back into, into the actual corporation. Yeah, what are some of the, the roadblocks that for, for making something like that successful in a large company? Uh, audit, due diligence, and uh, every bit of red tape that would come uh, with, uh, with the rules that exist in, uh, in a corporate environment. Uh, so uh, the, the way that we try to tackle this is by running uh, this department in, in isolation uh, so they don't have to adhere to our ISO certifications. They don't need to adhere to maybe our security uh, guidelines. They don't need necessarily need to be PCI compliant, so on and so forth. Okay. And you mentioned that, I mean, I, I know a lot of your experience has been as an engineering leader in, in larger companies, but you mentioned that you've worked in some startups as, as well. Um, what was your startup experience like and, 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 and what did you take from that uh, to apply to uh, working in an enterprise level company? That, that's a really good question. Actually, I think uh, probably 75% of my career has been spent in startups. In the last four years, uh, or four or five years, I've been, uh, I've been focusing on, on enterprises. Uh, I think the main takeaways from the startup world is that uh, you can accomplish a lot by uh, asking the right questions. You can accomplish a lot uh, without having to spend uh, a massive budget. And I think uh, the greatest skill that any founder of, or software engineer out there could have is adaptability. Uh, and honestly, I think uh, even if we look throughout history uh, at the survival of the species, I think the ones that are still alive today, as compared to 100,000 years ago, were the ones that could adapt to the change in their environments, right? Right. And and um, what has uh, been your experience with like startups that have been successful or, or have failed? So uh, in terms of uh, so, uh, startups that succeeded, um, a couple of years ago, I, I, I joined a, a startup called Potential Life, uh, and I was the third employee, the first technical employee. And honestly, we had a small table in a WeWork office in Soho, London, and uh, 
we were all in our early uh, 20s and we were trying to to build a leadership development and behavioral change platform aimed at corporates so our target audience were uh, banks and big enterprises as we felt that's where most of the stress and most of the value uh, that positive psychology combined with uh, a consultant mindset could bring uh, mo the most value. And, uh, and for us uh, personally, it was also a great learning experience because in the early days, you do everything from HR to uh, payroll to ordering coffee and ensuring the, the office is tidy at the end of the day. And then as your startup grows and you hit that 10 people, 20 people, 50 people mark, you, you already see the need of some sort of rules, some sort of guidelines. And uh, I guess uh, it, it matures you and it, it gets you to, it makes you to, uh, to understand why controlled chaos is, uh, is important, whereby you get enough rules so uh, your services are not down every day. However, you have enough freedom so you could still innovate on a daily basis. And as someone who's you know, joined early stage startups as a, as a dev, what, what advice would you give to non-technical founders out there who are looking to attract either a, 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 you know te technical co-founders or you know build out the initial um, engineering team? What 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 are some of the uh, things that you would recommend they do as approaching that? The the most important thing, call it the golden rule, for non-technical uh, founders is to frame problems, to not try to come with solutions. Understanding what the problem is, framing it clearly and getting the advice of someone that's technical, that will have a different way of thinking as compared to your own, will, uh, will allow the techies to, to, to have a voice, to feel appreciated, but also to be able to innovate. Because most of the innovation comes whenever you intersect diversity, right? You, you should have people from different backgrounds, different cultures that see things in a different way. And I think that's overlooked quite a bit uh, as a lot of people consider themselves quite tech savvy nowadays. And instead of framing problems, they kind of end up suggesting solutions. Right. And what kind of uh, expectations can, can you help set for uh, non-technical founders out there as, as far as like what could be built and um, in, in, a, in, in what amount of time and, you know, things like one of the things you always hear is, is, you know, the inevitable rewrite, you know, Hey, we, we built this, it works, but, you know, in startups, there's always a point where, you know, okay, now we've, we've, we've built something that, you know, shows that, you know, this idea um, you know, in a, in a way that, that works, but this is not going to scale, right? Like how, how can non-technical founders uh, better appreciate the evolution of um, the code that, that, that devs are going to build 
you know, when you're going from MVP to, to, to V1 and, and beyond? I will start with a really interesting analogy. Let's, start, let's say you're a content creator or an aspiring content creator. And you could save for three years to get a full-frame camera and invest $5,000 in it. Or you could just start with your phone and up upgrade as you go. By uh, looking at the latter option, you, uh, you start and build up incrementally as you understand your target audience, uh, as you understand exactly what your product will end up being, while keeping enough flexibility to pivot. Trying to build something that's perfect from day one will, uh, will take a long time, will burn whatever uh, seed money or whatever bootstrap budget uh, you might have and won't give you the flexibility of actually pivoting as many times as it's needed to get from idea to product market. What, what's an acceptable level of technical debt for like an early, early stage startup? I think for an early, early stage startup, uh, I think uh, non-technical founders should expect to, uh, to rewrite their, uh, their core, the core of their platform uh, at one point in... Uh, at the beginning of uh, the second year. So uh, I don't see that solution being uh, appropriate for more than two years after it's written, if they grow fast enough, of course. Right. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's one of the, the areas where non-technical founders might not have like a, a full understanding. They, they may hear like, oh, we're going to rewrite the whole thing after a year. Why did I just waste that whole year, right? And instead of understanding, it's sort of the natural evolution of, you know, how uh, uh, products are engineered. I, I totally agree. And it's everything is related to how fast you could go from zero to an MVP and put it in front of your customers. You could spend a couple of years to build something that's perfect and then realize that maybe you have a solution in search for a problem. Uh, or you could spend a month and a half building a decent MVP Put it in front of your customers, understand where you're standing, and then incrementally build. For early stage startups, you don't plan for a year ahead because right. you don't know where you're going to be in a year. Now, you mentioned that you're building an innovation lab um, within AWR. Uh, I'm curious, do you, does your company also... Um, you know, do, do you guys have an investment fund where, where you maybe, you know, if somebody comes to you with a great idea, like you'll give them some angel or seed capital, or are you looking for companies that are a little further along than that to partner with? I No. As a company, we do talk to companies at all levels, from pre-seed to uh, Series A. However, we do have a preference for companies that operate in one of the industries where we operate as well as we would have a vested interest in uh, getting that innovation onboarded sooner rather than later within our environment just to beat the competition. Right. And uh, to, just to change the, 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 the scope here a little bit, like what, what do you look for when you're building um, out engineering teams, whether that's at a startup or in your innovation labs? Mindset. 
I think that's the most important thing that one should look at whenever they're hiring, regardless of the position, regardless of the seniority. Just because uh, being surrounded by people that would push you up rather than people that would just hold you in place or pull you down, I think it's the greatest asset that a company could or will ever have. And then you would look at their skill set and uh, then at everything else. And and what makes for an effective, you know, small team and, you know, innovation leader? Uh, Communication is key just because uh, whenever you operate in in a small uh, environment, you end up getting your uh, fingers in all the pies. So... uh, your day will go from talking to product, to design, to marketing, or you might be doing a little bit of all of those while making sure that you're advancing uh, on the engineering side of things while keeping an eye open to new technologies uh, or a new open source frameworks that could save you time and that could push you forward faster than, uh, than other solutions on the market. Right. What What are some of the uh, emerging technologies that you're you're getting most excited about these days? I think uh, maybe it's not as new. However, uh, we are working right now on an interesting uh, blockchain implementation uh, across the UAE uh, to be able to track uh, the history of uh, vehicles. So imagine that in a year or two years' time, within the UAE, you will be able to have an open source database based on a immutable blockchain that will give you the confidence that any vehicle that you would purchase would have a clear history, a clear mileage, a clear list of previous issues. And we are collaborating uh, with uh, the Innovation Lab within within the uh, uh, UAE's uh, Ministry of Innovation. Uh, And uh, I find it a really cool initiative, considering it started by by a country rather than a startup. And and now have they developed their own blockchain or are they using a blockchain technology that already exists? It is a combo of both. Uh, they're, uh, they're leveraging uh, a blockchain technology that already exists. However, uh, there is a layer on top of it, uh, which I can't necessarily uh, talk about it a lot right now because it's not necessarily public information. However, uh, if we uh, join this conversation again in a year's time, I think uh, a lot of the uh, the other countries would would be uh, impressed by uh, by the level of innovation that the UAE is pushing in the next couple of years. Yeah. So how how do you find the the um, startup culture or just engineering culture in Dubai versus, um, you know, the other places you've lived in London and Romania? Uh, it's totally different. So uh, when, while I lived in London, uh, 
London is like the uh, the biggest tech hub of Europe. To be fair, right now uh, the UK is not in Europe anymore. Um, nevertheless, uh, London holds uh, the bulk of the investment, uh, the most successful startups uh, that Europe has, uh, and. Uh, it is, it is awesome being uh, surrounded uh, by people that innovate, by people that have the same mindset as uh, as yours. As it it does help, uh, and it, uh, it does help push you forward, and it does help you grow a lot. If we look at Dubai, uh, the startup scene here has been growing exponentially year on year. I, I moved here in 2017. And uh, even though uh, I don't know the exact numbers, I do feel like uh, the number of startups and the number of roles uh, within startups in Dubai uh, uh, increased tenfold uh, in the last, uh, in the last uh, four years, at least. Yeah. What kind of startups do you see springing up there? Uh, it's a mixture of fintech, startups uh, related to the auto industry, healthcare, and uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness, interesting. Why? So, what? Why mindfulness in Dubai? Uh, because everyone's far away from home. Uh, in the UAE, 85% of the inhabitants are expats. So oh, really? I think, yes, uh, I think it's a bit over 85%. However, I, I know for sure it's at least 85%. So uh, this means that you're surrounded by, by people that are in the same situation as yourself. Maybe uh, uh, people that have a strong connection uh, with their families back home, whatever that might be. Uh, and uh, moving from, uh, from uh, let's say, from uh, Western, from Europe or the US or Australia uh, into, into the Middle East could be a challenge. Uh, in a good way, uh, depending on where you come from, just because uh, I don't think there's, uh, and uh, do let me know if I'm wrong, I don't think there's another place where you do get 85% of the population uh, being expats. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, as an expat myself, I had no idea uh, Dubai and the UAE was um, so thoroughly inhabited by expats. That's... Uh, that's an insane number. How, how, how does it change um, the feel of the, the, the city just living there? Well, uh, I, uh, I think uh, the most appropriate comparison would be Dubai versus London uh, for me. And uh, I think uh, both places come with their upsides and downsides and both places come with uh, their own challenges. Personally, uh, I, uh, I I love the weather. Uh, eight uh, or seven and a half months out of the year, we do get like thirty to thirty-five degrees Celsius during the day, which makes it perfect. Uh, and then we do get like horrible summers, uh, <laughs> where it's extremely uh, hot. Uh, 
And uh, if I look at my uh, the time I've spent in London, you do get quite a mild weather where you're never too cold and you're never too hot. However, uh, it tends to impact uh, the energy levels and the mood of uh, certain people just because it is quite gray every day. And over the years, it piles up. Right. Yeah, I can imagine if you're going to winter in London, you know, or your summer in London when you're living in Dubai, uh, it'll make you appreciate the nice weather even more when you get back. Definitely, definitely. And uh, I think one of the advantages that Dubai and the UAE specifically has right now is that they are growing exponentially and they've been growing exponentially uh, for, for the past decade. And I think it's one of the few places where the government heavily invests uh, in in the economy, in startups, uh, and tries to attract the best talent from everywhere and tries to adapt their rules and their laws to foster innovation. So one of... Uh, one of the, I think, the most interesting laws that I've ever seen, which was introduced uh, as the pandemic started, was something called a f- uh, freelance visa, whereby the UAE will allow you to uh, move here, uh, live in Dubai for a year uh, by doing a small online process, as long as you can prove that you have the income that's needed in order to live here. And uh, we have no income tax and uh, we have uh, 5% VAT and uh, lovely weather throughout the year. And this happened in three months. So seeing the government reacting so quickly uh, while keeping the pandemic under control, it really impressed me. Yeah, yeah. And they probably pay you to, to, to take gas off their hands there, right? <laughs> well, uh, gas is really cheap. However, I'll give you one more fact about uh, Dubai. Uh, around uh, 5 to 7% of Dubai's uh, GDP comes from oil uh, because uh, they kind of ran out, uh, I don't know, 5 to 10 years ago. Uh, and most of their GDP comes from services and uh, their port which is something I didn't know uh, when I was living in Europe. I, I, w- I just assumed that Dubai still is still extremely oil-rich and uh, they still uh, live off dinosaur juice. Wow. Yeah, I would have I thought that as, as well. You've taught me a lot here today, and, and this has been great. I do have one final question for you before we um, sign off. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious, like, if you're for, – for those uh, listeners out there who are – um, you know, engineers who would like to be a CTO or, you know, some form of engineering leader one day. Um, what, how should they approach that? Should they find a mentor? Like, how do you develop those skills? Well, uh, I think you touched on a really good point. I think one of the biggest mistakes I've done that uh, kind of held me back from advancing faster was not getting a mentor early on. Having someone that could relate 
to your daily challenges and that could give you practical, actionable advice consistently uh, as the greatest asset uh, one could get regardless if they're engineers uh, uh, or they, uh, they, uh, they're in any other, uh, in any other industry. Excellent. Any, any final thoughts? Uh, I, I think this was a really fun uh, conversation and we touched on quite a few interesting topics. Uh, if uh, anyone that's listening to this podcast wants to uh, to get in touch, either to talk about their startup or uh, uh, to get some advice, maybe uh, if they're uh, engineers, uh, I... Uh, I'm, uh, I'm open on LinkedIn and I also mentor on Plato uh, where I donate my time. So uh, feel free to get in touch. Uh, I, love, uh, I love helping out. Well, thanks so much, Chip. It was great to have you. And, uh, you know, for the, the listeners out there, appreciate you turning, tuning in. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.